Let's open our Bibles to Ezekiel chapter 13. How about we do that? Our study tonight's called Don't Get Plastered. And you'll see why. It's not what you think. But if you're thinking that, that's a good exhortation too. But anyway, Lord willing, we'll look at the first 16 verses of this chapter. I appreciate great dialogue in literature or on film. I often try to complete a line of dialogue. Do you ever do that when you're watching something or, or reading something? Because I feel like if I can complete the dialogue with the, you know, if I can figure out what they're going to say, then the writer or the author didn't really think that much about it. <laughs> you know, I, if I could have written it, then I, I don't really want to read it. And I don't want to watch it and stuff, and, and so it drives me crazy. I think it started when I was in college because we used to, I used to read the Lord of the Rings books all the time, once a year, and then we read them once a year to our kids. And, and I don't know if you're like this or not, but I, sometimes I just... Tolkien's my favorite author, and he, he says stuff, and I just, I just have to stop and read it. And I thought, I, I would have never said that. And it's just so brilliant. It's so fantastic. And you probably have a favorite author, Uh, You know, who does that? While reading Ezekiel 13 and considering the subject of differentiating between genuine and false prophets, I was reminded of a great line of dialogue in The Lord of the Rings. The hobbits were following Strider out into the wilderness, hadn't yet determined if he were friend or foe. In the book, Frodo says of him, I think that one of the enemy's spies would, well, seem fairer, but feel fouler. And it was a very interesting turn of phrase. Feel, uh, seem fair, but feel fouler. In the 6th century, the false prophets, and as we'll see next week, Lord willing, the false prophetesses, they seemed fair. They encouraged the inhabitants of Jerusalem by telling them the city and its temple were secure. You have nothing to worry about. The exiles in Babylon were encouraged that they would soon be free to return to Israel. The people should have felt the foulness of those words because the false prophets and prophetesses spoke not a word against Israel's very present idolatry. It was foul of them to overlook sin, to ignore God's moral law and tell the people what they wanted to hear. It's one thing to have a false prophecy, hey, everything's going to be all right, but it's another thing to tell them in the midst of of what everyone knew what was going on, idolatry in the temple, out in the wilderness, up in the high places, not speaking at all about the moral condition of the nation, just, oh, everything's going to be fine. Those are foul words. Meanwhile, Jeremiah back in Israel and Ezekiel in exile looked foul to the people, but their words were the fair words. They exposed the people's ongoing sin And they warned of the judgment that was about to fall upon them. And so we pick up our text in verses 1 and 2. And the word of the Lord came to me saying, Son of man, prophesy against the prophets of Israel who prophesy and say to those who prophesy out of their own heart, hear the word of the Lord. Now God referred to these men as prophets who prophesy. But it's clear as we go through this chapter, they were not really prophets at all. They hung out their own shingle. They appointed themselves. Since they had no calling and no gifting whatsoever, the best they could do was prophesy falsely out of their own heart. 
An equivalent today would be attempting to minister God's word without any calling or gifting from God. And there are a lot of men and women who set themselves up as teachers of God's word. They've never been recognized by a body of believers or given the opportunity to teach and and watched. They just hang out their own shingle and they appoint themselves. Now, blessedly, the consequences of listening to them or following them, they're not always as severe as they were in the Old Testament. Because after all, even if a person is not a gifted Bible teacher, they may be able to teach and actually teach things that agree with the Word of God. They're not necessarily teaching error. Still, I think we ought to be careful because if there is any sense of self-promotion or of ministering in the energy of the flesh rather than the Spirit, that's going to hinder the real work of the Lord in your life. And so uh, the false prophets clearly just deciding on their own that they were going to have visions, and, uh, but it was all coming from their own heart. Uh, and, and today we just want to be a little bit cautious, obviously, uh, and, and see that there's a valid ministry going on. Now in verse 3, Thus says the Lord God, Woe to the foolish prophets who follow their own spirit and have seen nothing. Now this word foolish, here it doesn't refer to their intelligence or their intellect. It refers to their morality. They were not men of God who were troubled by the sin of the people. And, and the people of Israel knew better. All of the prophets that God had given them prior in their history as a people, the prophets that they revered, they were all men who spoke out against uh, immorality and idolatry. Not these men. They were foolish in that sense. They were condoning idolatry and were themselves idolaters. I mean, basically, if you, if you boil down their prophecy, it was... It, they didn't actually say it this way, but they were basically saying, hey, the whole, we're all involved in idolatry and that's okay. Nobody's going to uh, be concerned about that because after all, this is Jerusalem and this is the temple and God's never going to destroy it. So let's just continue in our sin and everything's going to be fine. And, and uh, it, it's, isn't it remarkable what people will believe uh, once you start to believe a lie? Uh, and and uh, so this was their message. It was an immoral message. It was a foolish message. They were foolish to think that their sin was compatible with spirituality. If you follow your own spirit, your own desires, you're not really going to see the things that God is trying to show you. Joyful submission is the price of revelation. The more I agree with God, the more He will show me about Himself and His Word. Uh, The more that I'm willing to let God's Word examine me and show me where I need to change and rearrange things, then the more God is going to draw close to me and show me really wonderful things in His Word. And I'm not going to be saying crazy things that uh, don't rock anybody's world. Verse 4 and 5, O Israel, your prophets are like foxes in the deserts. You have not gone up into the gaps to build a wall for the house of Israel, to stand in battle on the day of the Lord. Now, it's an interesting mix of metaphors. The main idea is to fortify the people with the Word of God as if you were building a strong wall around them to defend them against attack. You hear this all the time. I say it. You probably have said it. When we're praying for people or for a situation, we generally use the Christian uh, language term, build a hedge around that person. 
Lord, be a hedge or be a wall or around that person. And uh, in Old Testament times, of course, they had walled cities, but uh, they also had walled vineyards, or sometimes if you couldn't afford a wall, they would put a hedge. And uh, some of these hedges were, you know, pretty extensive. And so, uh, you know, we pray that, and, and we all have kind of an understanding of what we're talking about. The kind of wall or hedge we're talking about is a spiritual one, giving people the spiritual fortitude that they need to protect their walk with the Lord and to be able to endure their circumstances. And so what Ezekiel is telling us is that when you minister the Word of God to a person, you're to fortify them, to help them build that wall, to, to fill holes in the gaps, as it were, so that they can stand strong. Now, by speaking falsehoods, these prophets were undermining the spiritual wall that men like Jeremiah and Ezekiel were seeking to build and fortify. And so here comes Jeremiah in Jerusalem. Here's Ezekiel in Babylon speaking the word of God, seeking to build these people up. And then these false prophets, the Lord says, they're like foxes who come and destroy uh, these walls. They uh, are scavengers who would find the gaps and the weak places in the walls around the vineyards or cities, crawl through them to spoil the fruit. Every ingress would weaken the wall more until a huge breach was established. And so, uh, obviously, beasts and foxes and all these wild kind of animals were a real problem uh, back in those days. And, uh, you know, we have our own problems with agriculture today and different things. But, you know, I'm the kind of person that I, I, sadly, you know, I don't have a lot of skills in in terms of building stuff or fixing stuff. And, you know, uh, and so I'm the kind of guy that lets things go. You know, I notice something and say, oh, I'll get around to that. You know, and, you know, whenever you let things go, do they get better or do they get worse? They get worse. You know, and then you, and then it comes a point, and and somebody finally, say, I finally have somebody come and look at it, who you know, and they say, "Wow, why didn't you do something about this ten years ago?" Uh, you know, before it was completely destroyed. And I go, oh, I don't know, I've been busy, and uh, you know, so so that's the idea here. Here's here's you know Ezekiel putting his life on the line. He's he's laying it all out there, trying to build this hedge for the people. Trying to prepare them for the, 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 the shock, really, uh, that, that they're going to be in exile for a long time, that the city is going to fall, that the temple's going to be r- destroyed and ruined. He's building and building and building. And then these multitudes of false prophets coming in like foxes, stealing that away, making a breach and a hole in that wall so that Ezekiel can't really make any progress. Having been spiritually spoiled, the people of Israel would not be able to stand when the city and the temple and the nation fell. It would, it, would, it would absolutely knock them back. And so in verse 6, they have envisioned futility and false divination, saying, thus says the Lord. But the Lord has not sent them, yet they hope that the word may be confirmed. Have you not seen a futile vision? And have you not spoken false divination? You say the Lord says, but I have not spoken. Now, the Lord makes it clear that he had not spoken to or through these men. Today, we have the written word and we can measure the words of men against it. What a great advantage that is. Uh, and, you know, now these guys, they had their, uh, the Old Testament. Uh, they didn't have it in, you know, 
as readily available as we do. So, I mean, they also have the Word of God, but we have so much more of the Word. And how wonderful to, to really measure everything that we hear against that canon or that measuring stick of Scripture. Uh, provided we actually do that and we, we get in the habit of doing that. We all of us, I've been talking about this a lot lately, we all of us need to develop a more... Uh, I, I don't want to say a critical spirit because that people, you'll take it the wrong way, but I think you know what I mean. A, a sense of, hey, I'm going to think about what I just heard and I'm going to make sure that it's really the Word of God. Uh, because if it's not, the person who told me that needs to be corrected. Uh, and if it is, then I need to take that in. I need to say that, yeah, that's right on, that's for me. Uh, and so, uh, you know, we need to listen to what's being taught, listen to what's being said, uh, and then judge it uh, according to what we know to be true. What a great advantage God has given us. And then in verse 8, Therefore, thus says the Lord God, because you have spoken nonsense and envisioned lies, <coughs> excuse me, therefore I am indeed against you, says the Lord God. My hand will be against the prophets who envision futility and who divine lies. They shall not be in the assembly of my people, nor be written in the record of the house of Israel, nor shall they enter into the land of Israel. Then you shall know that I am the Lord God. One thing about the Lord, he's, um, from our perspective, we talked about this a little bit last week, but in a different way, he's never really in a hurry. Uh, you know, here he says, you know, some things are going to happen, and after they happen, then you're going to realize that I'm the Lord, that I was telling you the truth in the first place. And, and so just watch how things play out, see how they fall out, uh, you know, that's how I'm going to have to defend myself. I'm not really going to defend myself. I've, just, I've told you the truth. If you want to believe a lie, then just watch how all this is going to work out and then you will know that I am the Lord. Uh, and and what, a, what a wonder it is that God speaks to us in the Word uh, and puts, his, puts Himself out like that, you know, in, in the area of, of prophecy, which to them this would have been a prophecy. Say, hey, these guys are telling you one thing, this is what's going to happen, and when it happens, then you're going to know that I'm the Lord. And that's why we like our prophecy updates. It's like, hey, God said this was going to happen, this is happening, thus says the Lord. You know, and it, it's, we don't need that. You know, God doesn't have to prove himself, but what a wonderful thing it is that he uh, puts himself out like that. Uh, and, and this is what, one of the things that differentiates uh, the Bible and biblical Christianity from all the other world religions they all make predictions and have ideas too, but none of them ever come true. Uh, you know, and, and, and there's I don't know how many different things. They're, they're still trying to find stuff in, in the writings of, of the Mormons that are supposed to have happened in the 1800s, you know, that they don't know anything about. And so uh, it's just crazy stuff. Now, three punishments are determined against these foolish prophets. Number one, they shall not be in the assembly of my people. In other versions, this is translated, they shall not be in the council of my people. And that seems to mean that they will lose their place of authority as those who give advice and counsel. Uh, and this is a warning to us or an encouragement to us to not look to wrong sources for spiritual advice. Uh, I, I love the verse in Hebrews where we learn that God is the only one who can discern between the soul and the spirit. Uh, and and there, there's, just, there's something going on in the heart of a man or a woman. There's just a deep place 
where there has to be a discernment between the soul and the spirit where God can do his work. And there's just nothing else and no one else who can do that. There's no psychology. There's no philosophy. There's no any kind of uh, religion. Nothing can tap into that place, that, that most important place, and really solve the ultimate issues of life. But God says, I can do that because I created you. I know your spirit. I know your soul. There's that unique ministry that God has. Uh, And so, uh, you know, God says, I can do that and I can anoint others to kind of point you in the right direction. And these aren't the guys. Uh, And so we shouldn't be looking to wrong sources for spiritual advice. I've told you this before, but a lot of times people call and um, they, they call the church looking for... Uh, uh, counsel, but what they really, they ask, you know, are there any professional counselors that you can send me to? Uh, Who would you recommend? And and we don't recommend, we don't recommend any. We recommend discipleship. Uh, Now, if a person has a physical problem, uh, then they need to go see a doctor. Uh, But if you're having a marital problem, you need to see a Christian. You need to talk to a Christian. And I'm of the opinion you can talk to any Christian that knows the Bible. Uh, because it's not hard to figure out what's wrong with your marriage. You're selfish. And so as soon as you deal with that, you're going to have a great marriage. Uh, and, well, wait a minute, it can't be that easy. You don't know my wife. Well, that's all I need to know, is that you would say that about your wife. And so, I mean, you know, it's, it's really, I, mean, I don't mean to overly simplify things, but things are usually pretty simple. You're selfish. And get over yourself, repent, do what the Bible says. Uh, And, and, you know, there are some issues that seem more complicated than that, uh, but they're usually in my, you know, in my uh, experience, my own life and in the lives of others, they're only complicated because we won't really do what the Bible says. We won't forgive a person, you know, until they do something else. And and then you hear these words of Jesus saying 70 times 7, 70 times 7, 70 times 7, and you're trying to think, well, it's been more than 490 times today, you know, so... You know, I mean, you don't know. I don't know how many times people have said, and I've probably said it myself, you don't know that person. You know, if you were in my situation, uh, you know. And that's why I used to think this was a profound counseling technique. I would say to people, what would you tell somebody who came to you? And people always have the best advice for people. They said, this is what I would say. I'd say to love your wife as Christ loved the church, but they're not married to my wife. I tell them to submit to their husband, but they don't know my husband. Uh, And so everybody always thinks they're in a unique situation uh, and they need some kind of professional help. Now, I'm not saying that a Christian can't get more education and be helpful. That's not it. I'm talking about just a secular counselor. Uh, And and the sad thing about most of the secular counselors that I've encountered over the years, uh, they'll hang with you for a while, but ultimately if you want to get a divorce, then... Then they, okay, well, we tried. Didn't we try? You came for seven sessions and it cost you $100 a pop, you know, or your insurance company, so well, go for it. Now, after all, you know, you, you, who wants that kind of stress and stuff? And so, uh, you know, so we just say, hey, come to, come to church. Uh, it, sometimes I feel like an absolute fool. People say, hey, who would you recommend for counseling? I said, I'd recommend you come to church. Our church, another church, a good church. Start coming to church. Start getting to know some Christians. Go to lunch with some Christians. Let them pray for you. Become part of... No, but really, who would you recommend for counseling? <laughs> it, it does. does it sounds, it's, now, here in this setting, it sounds so profound, doesn't it? Well, yeah. 
Go to church and people will love on you and share Jesus with you. It will be wonderful. But when you're out there and say, hey, I need some marriage counseling. Yeah, come to church. What are you talking about? I didn't ask you, you know, I don't want to join a church. I want marriage counseling, you know. All right, you know, so, but, so, you know, go to the source. And then it says, number two, don't, uh, they won't be written in the record of the house of Israel. When the Jews were able to return to Jerusalem after the Babylonian captivity, a register was made. Uh, this was saying that these foolish false men would not be found in that register because in uh, the next thing, nor shall they enter into the land of Israel. They would either be dead or excommunicated. They would be found out by that time as false prophets. Uh, it was going to be pretty obvious that you were a false prophet once the city fell and the temple was burned to the ground. Uh, y- your prophecies were going to fail. Uh, and so, uh, you know, that was going to be the end. And then the, peri- you know, the period of time they were in exile, they did experience uh, revival, as it were, and, and there was a desire to return to the land. And so these guys weren't going to be a part of that. Verse 10, because indeed, because they have seduced my people, saying peace when there is no peace, and one builds a wall and they plaster it with untempered mortar, say to those who plaster it with untempered mortar that it will fall. There will be flooding rain and you, O great hailstones, shall fall and a stormy wind shall tear it down. Now God considered their behavior a seduction. It's a reminder that we are in a love relationship with God and that he is spiritually jealous over us. And the kind of jealousy God has is a good jealousy. I want God to be jealous over me and to watch out for me and to uh, you know, do everything he can to keep me walking with him. Now, when we begin to entertain things in our lives that are false, it's like having an affair. It's like bringing another man or another woman into our uh, bedroom and, and acting like it's normal. Uh, you know... People I know, most of the people I've known over the years who've had some kind of an extramarital uh, affair, they do it in secret until they're found out. God is saying, when you sin against me by going with these false teachings, it's as if you're doing it openly. You're just bringing them uh, home with you and acting like it doesn't mean anything to me. And so God reminds us that he is very, very much in love with us and very, very jealous of uh, our hearts and uh, well that he should be. Then there's an amplification of this wall metaphor. Listening to these guys was compared to building a bearing wall without mortaring it together and then plastering it as if it were done. Uh, Some of you have probably had contractors do this, but uh, any storm would immediately destroy it, especially one like the severe storm of judgment coming upon Jerusalem. We're all familiar with all too tragic stories of of contractors, uh, especially in foreign countries, who cut corners and because of greed and corruption and all, they, you know, they didn't build up to the standards. Uh, and, and as a result, when the earthquake came, when the floods came, when the winds came, whatever, it, those buildings were destroyed with great loss of life. Uh, and and it's, a, it's a tragedy. And that's the picture that Ezekiel's giving us. He says, it's like building a brick wall or a rock wall with no mortar, and then plastering over it as if it's done and fortified, the first storm that comes along, you're going to find out that you have no protection whatsoever. God promises that we can withstand any storm that comes our way. I was thinking about this today, and I almost 
am hesitant to say that, but I think you know that it's true. God says you can, you can withstand any storm that comes your way. Matthew chapter 7, Jesus said this, Whoever hears these sayings of mine and does them, I will liken to a wise man who builds his house on the rock. The rains descend, the floods came, the winds blew and beat on that house. It did not fall, for it was founded on the rock. And then the Apostle Paul tells us in Corinthians, we can choose to build with precious materials that will endure even a heavenly inspection uh, and, and be with us uh, eternally. Uh, and so we can withstand any storm that comes our way, but we need to build up to code and be able to withstand uh, the things that are coming. We, we have to follow God's building plan and building code in order to be able to withstand. So verse 12 says, Surely when the wall has fallen, will it not be said to you, Where is the mortar which you have plastered it? This is a great question. I thought about this in the context of just help, discipling people, and I thought this would be a great question for an intake form prior to counseling someone. Have you ever, I don't know, we sometimes do this mostly with people that we don't know, but sometimes if people want to come in for counseling, you, you know, or you give them an intake form where they'd answer some questions, you know, how long have you been a Christian and what's your situation and all that. I think this would be a great question. It would throw people off. Be one of those, they think it was a trick question, you know. You'd say, now, the final question on this is, where is the mortar with which you plastered it? Uh, and, and the idea is that lives fall to pieces, not because of the storm, but because there's no mortar holding the life together. God said, you can withstand any storm with my help. If you build on the rock, if you're on the right foundation, if you're building according to the plan... Any storm you can endure. And we, many, all of us have withstood certain storms. We know other people who have withstood storms. Some people, don't you know some people, you think, how in the world are they getting through that? If that were me, I'd be a basket case. And, and the, because they're building with some kind of mortar. They're building on God's foundation. And, and uh, people whose lives fall apart, they don't have any mortar holding things together. Or they have a worldly mortar. Especially if they're non-believers, their mortar is a philosophy or a psychology or some ism from the world. But those things cannot hold life together when storms and shakings come. And they, it's as if their whole life is revealed. It looks good on the outside. It's, it's plastered. It's whitewashed. It's, it's all ready to go. But when the storm comes, you can just push on it and it falls over uh, because there's no mortar. Verse 13, Therefore, thus says the Lord God, I will cause a stormy wind to break forth in my fury, and there shall be a flooding rain in my anger, and great hailstones in fury to consume it. So I will break down the wall you have plastered with untempered mortar. I will bring it down to the ground so that its foundation will be uncovered. It will fall and you shall be consumed in the midst of it. Then you shall know that I am the Lord. Now, in the case of the Jews, the storm was a gathering and it was a punishment uh, from the Babylonian army. <clears throat> in our lives, there will be storms. They're not always, they're not even often punishments, but they are severe nonetheless. And so we need to be storm ready. We need to have our lives prepared. Some of you have lived in areas where there is real weather, extreme weather, and you know that you have to be prepared for it. The closest I ever got 
Uh, we lived up in the San Bernardino Mountains uh, in Running Springs. And it's, it's, it can get pretty severe up there. It's up near the Camp Green Valley Lake where the kids go. It's about 7,000 feet in elevation, just short of 7,000 feet. And so when you're driving up there, getting home in these snowstorms, you need to be prepared. And so I always had tons of stuff in my trunk, you know. Uh, of course, you had tire chains and uh, blankets for when your tire chains failed and you had to just curl up in the car and not die, uh, and, and uh, uh, snow shovel and all the kinds of equipment. You know, I used to have asphalt roofing shingles in my car. How many of you know the asphalt roofing shingle trick? You know, if your car gets stuck on ice, you can make a little roadway of asphalt roofing shingles under the wheels and, and it'll gain traction. But let me give you a, a clue. Don't stand behind the car while your wife is driving it. I thought I was going to be decapitated because I thought, you know, hey, this is going to work. This is really cool. I'd, I'd gotten, you know, it was one of these handyman tips, you know, probably from Tim the Toolman Taylor or something. And it really, we were stuck. I had a 1978 Monte Carlo. It was not really a snow car. But, uh, and so we got stuck in this little icy patch. And so I go, hey, I, I put out these asphalt roofing shingles, you know. And then for some reason, I stood behind the car. And sure enough, the car got traction. And boom, man, these things come shooting out of there like bullets. And I was, uh, it was, I'm like, stop. Of course, Pam couldn't hear, you know. But anyway, but you're ready for that kind of thing. Now, when things are going well, we all have a tendency to coast a little. Church is important, but it's not critical. We're open-minded to reading stuff that's not quite doctrinally sound, maybe, or to experimenting with more secular stuff. It's like, I just think, we don't think about it. You don't think, hey, my life is going well right now, so I'll just goof off a little. But, but that's the natural tendency. This has always happened to the Jews. Whenever God was really blessing them and things were going well, they just, ah, okay, you know, it, you know. A little bit of idolatry here, a little bit of dabbling with the world there. It's no big deal. And so they just weren't on guard. In the church, we fool around with secular stuff, songs, rather than focusing our hearts on that which is pure and honorable. Uh, there's a bunch of churches right now. Every, people send me information. They say, hey, this church over here, that church over there, they played this song uh, you know, by that secular group. And I'm thinking, yeah, what's up with that? And if you mention it to them, it's like, well, you guys are, you know, some kind of fundamentalist weirdos. You know, we're contemporary. We're, we're on the cutting edge. Uh, let me bring it more home to me. Popular trend among pastors today is to integrate foul language, profanity, into their messages to become more relevant. Now, God love you. You probably think it's weird, but this is really happening. Some of the most popular pastors in America are dabbling with this kind of profane language. And I'm not going to give you any examples. So there. Uh, but, you know, to me, it's like I, I, I'm always worried I'm going to slip up and say something or that I'm going to get Tourette's syndrome in the pulpit all of a sudden, you know. Actually, if I do slip up, I'm going to go into a Tourette's thing. You know, just, wow, you know, I need to get treated... I got some medication. Oh, some medication. Yeah. There's only two things you can. There's well. There's three things you can do when you slip up and say something you shouldn't. You can ignore it and act like no one knows what's going on. You can stop and acknowledge it and say what a idiot you are, or you can act like you have Tourette syndrome. I mean that, and that's what I would opt for. So anyway, apologies to anybody here who might have Tourette's, but uh, so. Uh, 
Here's what Pastor Greg Laurie says about using profanity in the pulpit. Greg says, you've got the cussing preacher syndrome today. The pastor thinks it's cool to use profanity in the pulpit so people will see him as one of them. Is this really necessary? I don't think so. Look, I've been a pastor for 35 years. We've never had a problem reaching our culture and seeing people come to Christ. I'm all for being real and authentic, but I also stand on the platform to speak the Word of God. Peter says, if anyone speaks... He should do it as one speaking the very words of God. Uh, Nobody's more contemporary than Greg. Nobody has more going on than Greg when it comes to that. And, uh, you know, for these guys, you know, for for the churches to start dabbling in all of this secular stuff just for the shock value of it, to, to play some song by some really secular band. I'm not talking about some crossover band. I'm talking about a band that if you saw them, you would think, what's up with that? You know, but they have a song that doesn't have too much cussing in it or any, and, and it can kind of, you know, it's a love song, so it's quasi-Christian. And it's like, and then you read, and I read, I, I read it on their Facebook now. Everybody's on Facebook, right? And they all are telling what they're doing. I'm thinking, have some dignity on Facebook, you know? And they say, oh, our church just did this. And it's like, wow, we're so cutting edge. And, I, and I, I thank God for people like Greg Laurie who really are on the cutting edge and are maintaining holiness and purity, and the Word of God. Uh, So let's build with the mortar that has served our spiritual ancestors so well, rather than the foul swill of the world. Now, when something hits, it can leave us unprepared, and that's why sometimes you see people crumble so rapidly when a trial comes. Their lives are like plaster over bricks that are not mortared. It takes time to build a good, strong, level, solid wall, brick upon brick, with sufficient mortar to hold them together on all sides, Verse 15, Thus will I accomplish my wrath on the wall and those who have plastered it with untempered mortar, and I will say to you, the wall is no more, nor those who plastered it. That is the prophets of Israel who prophesy concerning Jerusalem and who see visions of peace for her when there is no peace, says the Lord. And so, hence my title, Don't Get Plastered. Don't allow yourself to build with anything other than the most precious, the most valuable spiritual materials according to the master's plan. Build solid uh, and don't worry about the plastering. Let the Lord do the finished work. You just build. Amen?